Hi everyone, this is Ken Gregory for the Progressive Palaver with a special note on additions and corrections. Special concert series episode number 14 for the Royal Affair Tour. This episode was recorded in the early hours of June 16th, following the June 15th performance in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Carl Palmer, Paul Bulatowicz, and Arthur Brown played with bassist David Pastorius, who did a fantastic job. David Pastorius deserves a shout out for lightning fast finger work, but mostly for his unassuming tribute to the late genius that was Greg Lake. I credited Simon Fitzpatrick, who previously toured with Carl and Paul. We were immensely entertained by the cello player in the Moody Blues, who we should have credited as Jason Charbonneau. The entire Moody Blues band delivered a fantastic performance, including Jason Charbonneau, Duffy King on killer guitars and killer vocals, Alan Hewitt, musical director, keys and backing vox, and Billy Ashbaugh on drums. I can't say enough about the atmosphere during the Moody Blues set. A song that was a childhood favorite of mine, Gemini Dream, got its just presentation. Really enjoyed that one. Thanks, guys. So get on the uh, social medias. Find Duffy King. He represents hardcore. Uh, find Duffy King, follow him, and uh, he will tour the venues and uh, get you pumped up for that concert. If you're, if you're in doubt, get your tickets now for those remaining shows for the Royal Affair. Quite a fun time. You must experience Arthur Brown. You must see the uh, wicked maneuvers of Paul Bielitowicz. You must see... Um, Ron Thal Bumblefoot step out from behind his guitar and up to the mic. You must see these things, not to mention some very, very nice work by Yes. Do it for the kids. Rock and roll. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair and on this special concert series edition of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friend Ken Gregory as we discuss the Royal Affair Tour in Atlantic City. Yeah, so just got back to Casa de Ken after uh, a short trip up the Atlantic City Expressway, back from Atlantic City, and the Hard Rock, what, Hotel and Casino, I guess it is? Indeed. Yeah. Where we saw all four parts of the Royal Affair Tour. And we had had some, some conversation on the way down to Atlantic City, I'm not exactly sure at this point whether that's going to be used or not, but um, there were some questions that that um, arose from that original conversation, 
And the answer to at least one of those questions is, yes, Carl Palmer is the drummer for Asia today. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so we had that. So, and, and another question that I had sort of posed in that initial conversation was, you know, why would, why would Yes not only bring in an opening act, which they haven't had for years, why would they bring in three opening acts? But after looking at the show and thinking about, you know, some things, I have a theory. I'm not saying it's the case, but I have a theory. Okay. The theory is, is twofold. One, we've all talked about for a long time the sort of incestuous family tree of English progressive rock music. So, for instance, you have Billy Sherwood, who is, you know, on stage with both Yes and Asia. You have Carl Palmer, who's on stage with both Asia and Carl Palmer's ELP legacy. You have Steve Howe, who shows up for half of the Asia set. Um, Jeff Downs as well. He's in in both. So you've you've got all of this, you know, in and out and everyone's connected up. Um, I'm still fascinated by the fact that Jay Shellen was at least at one point the drummer for Asia featuring John Payne. True. And yet now he's in Yes with Steve Howe and Jeff Downs. I mean, the, the whole thing just gets totally crazy. So in, in some regards, it makes sense to have everybody there um, because they all sort of play around on each other's um, stuff anyway. But but why would that suddenly become okay? So here's, here's my hypothesis. I think after last year and having reached the yes 50 milestone and, and, and observing it so well it's like they were carrying around this big, big bag of, of stuff. And they had certain expectations they had to live up to. And having done that, they can now relax a little bit and do, you know, whatever they want. Because if you think about it, Asia did an ELP song. Yes, did a John Lennon song. You know, there was... Wonderful. There was all this sort of cross-pollination that you don't generally see. Mm-hmm. So that was my thinking um, during the show as to why suddenly this was a good idea. I, I think Steve just put on his goofball hat and he's just loving it. He, uh, he, he had these high standards and everything had to be a certain way. And you know, Alan was on board with that. And as the masters of ceremony, they ran a tight ship and they always, you know either covered two albums or put together this stellar concert. And, 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 and now it's like party time for the boys. They're, 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 they're taking the circus on the road, man. They are. I will say, and, and tell me what your thought is, because we haven't really talked about this. So we saw three bands before Yes. We have seen Yes multiple times together. Um, this particular lineup of Yes Official has been together for several tours at this point. And, and as you mentioned, Steve Howe and, and Alan, you know, and Chris, when he was alive, they had very high standards with, with everything. It seemed obvious to me while I enjoyed all four parts, it seemed obvious that the other three bands had not been performing together 
as long as yes had been. That's a very polite thing to say. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, d- different styles there. Uh, ELP rooted in a bit of improvisation. And Moody's really straightforward rock and roll. You know, and Asia on the heavier side, you know, eighth notes and a little bit more predictable, but still complex, but nothing on the level of yes music. Nothing. So while a couple of questions may have been answered throughout our experience tonight, for me personally, there's a huge question that has been posed as a result of all this. Who or what the fuck is Arthur Brown? <laughs> because if I'm going to have a nightmare tonight, it's going to center around Arthur Brown. Yeah, okay. So, so, so <laughs> here at the Palaver, we get mail from folks who lived this and breathed it and grew up with it. And, and we are newcomers. This podcast is about discovering what it was that happened before we were born and when we were children. And this guy, Arthur Brown, was not on our radar in the crib. And we we're trying to figure out in post what this man is all about. And uh, he's quite a character. And uh, that number one hit that they had, I mean, I, I did appreciate the Carl Palmer history lesson. I mean, I know... <laughs> I know he goes around the country and he's got his Carl Palmer workshop. I think it's here in Philly, the one coming up in the fall. And uh, it comes at a lot of this from an educational perspective and that bleeds into his live show. So Carl Palmer is up there giving us the, the context for how he and Arthur Brown first came to the U.S. And the crazy world of Arthur Brown had a number one hit and, and, and that blew me away because Fire, while I had heard the opening voice uh, and the riff, in no way did I consider this a classic rock staple. Right? <laughs> right. Right. But God damn, that, it, it, that song had wings of its own. Yeah, he. I, I, I literally, I had come across the name once or twice leading up to tonight but but i hadn't really thought about it i'd never seen him obviously and when we walked into that uh into that auditorium i was like what the hell and every time he came back so like i I don't know if this is normal for him they they showed a clip during the fire video that i'm assuming was the original fire videos so it it Apparently, the, the face painting is, is part of Arthur Brown's mm-hmm. thing. Um, but whatever face paint he had going on tonight was just... Maybe I was just shocked by the whole thing, but I found it to be very disturbing and unnerving. But every time he came out, and he performed, what, three songs with them? Three or four. Every time he came out, he had on different headgear. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's quite a tall chap. He looms over the band. And he was dressed, I mean, from the neck down, he was dressed like a pirate. We like pirates. Well, we love pirates. I'm totally on board with that. It's just, I don't normally expect to see them at a rock show. Except, unless I'm seeing Blue Murder back in the day. Our favorite proggies have all dressed like pirates at one time or another. (laughs) Steve Hogarth included. 
Uh, that's true. He did do the puffy shirt. Yes. Yeah. So, um, ELP, they only did, uh, I guess, five songs. But, you know... Long-ass songs. Long-ass songs. I found it very interesting. So, again, as we established in the in the Prelude episode, whether or not it gets released, we are not up on our ELP um, lore or music. <laughs> um, but... I've got a little over a month, I think, to close that gap. Because here's what fascinates me. With the exception of Arthur Brown, who only came in to sing, they basically performed as a trio. But as a guitar trio, now, as I seem to recall, um, there was there was a lot of keyboards not so much guitar. Apparently, no one covers <laughs> Keith Emerson. Yeah. Yes. So, so, so I, I need, I need to become more familiar with the music to understand how that got translated to what I heard tonight. Right. Yeah, and Paul is amazing. Bilatowicz or Bilatowicz, uh is amazing. He looks like a little version of a young version of Steve Howe in a way. But he's got the Guthrie Govan chops. Yeah. You know? I did think of Guthrie while <laughs> while they were playing. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and um, uh, the long hair reminds me of the early Steve Howe. And then the interaction with the crowd mm-hmm. is, is, is clearly reminiscent of Steve Howe in a way. So, so Paul, Paul is a force to behold on that guitar. So I've got some work to do before I see them in in Dallas um, so that I can evaluate this portion of the show a little bit more um, um, in depth because I just, I'm fascinated as to why he would choose to set up a guitar trio to keep alive the legacy of Emerson, Lake and Palmer. It just, it seems like a very interesting choice. And for those of you listening, you know, maybe maybe ELP was more guitar driven than I think it was, but no. I don't I don't think so. No, I mean Greg like played acoustic. But then he switched to play bass. So this is just pure reverence for Keith Emerson and why not? So I I actually did see ELP live. Did you? Yes. Oh, okay. Um here in Philly, back in the day. Late '90s, Man Music Center. Okay, the man, yeah. So, so Keith Emerson was a force to be on. Cool. There is the noise factor. You know that Keith and Carl together are just gonna lay it on really thick. With the, just, just long endings. And yeah. Yeah, long endings. So that brings up maybe I don't know when we want to get into because I just thought of of one of the, the fun, incestuous side note stories that we sort of touched on the Prelude episode, which has to do with the the John Wetton, Greg Lake, Asia sort of circle in and out. <laughs> that just makes me laugh every time yeah. I think about yeah. it. Yeah. So shortly, Asia does, I guess... Well, I don't exactly know when it, it it was sometime in the first two Asia albums. They're getting ready or they're going to Japan to do a show. 
And I guess John Wetton wasn't behaving very well and was asked to leave or left or something. And Greg Lake comes in like, you know, just, okay, Greg, can you come in and do this show? Greg does a couple of shows and then somehow John Wetton gets asked back into the fold. Wow. And then John says, well, if I'm going to stay, then Steve has to go. So Steve leaves and then Astra happens and then John goes again John Payne comes in Steve Howe comes back and lends a hand on Aqua and you know the rest is history which just that whole thing just cracks me up and then like I said you've got the whole Jay Shellen thing later on in yeah. in the in the cycle um and and then of course Emerson and Lake get together, you know, late in, in the time with Cozy Powell. And then one of them leaves and is replaced by Robert Barry, and they form three. Oh. Oh. Yeah. That's complex. It, 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 gets, it gets really, really crazy. So, you know, it's just, it's fun to talk about all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And somehow there's a connection, and I can't remember what it is. There's a connection between Steve Howe and Robert Berry. But I don't remember what it is. Well, I got the bass player's name. Yeah? Simon Fitzpatrick. Really? Well, I can't promise you that that's who we saw, though. Because I swear he was introduced to someone else. Yeah, I wish I had caught, uh, I'd thought to record the introductions, because I... I didn't catch them in real time. Yeah. Um, the bass player was, was pretty smoking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He blew me away. So, he was laying low, doing his thing. Doing the faithful to Greg Lake kind of thing. Yeah. I do need to talk live sound reinforcement. Okay. Um, I found the mud intolerable in the mix for ELP... Moody Blues and somewhat for Asia. Yeah. And then the mud magically went away for Yes. It really did, didn't it? It yeah. was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I thought of, it made me think of um, seeing King's X and hearing Ty Tabor's sound at the Sellersville Theater. And the lesson to me was it's not the frequencies in the guitar sound as so much as the frequencies that are not in the guitar sound. Because mm-hmm. Ty has this very audible, in-your-face, loving the guitar, almost like it's in my mouth and I'm salivating over the guitar. It's like so present in me. It, it, it doesn't just permeate my ears. It permeates my skin. It's like that wonderful guitar that's happening in front of me and there's something about that that just resonates my brain and and the mud like makes it impossible to to decipher what i'm looking for right And, and 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 so in the same way that you would craft the perfect guitar tone, you, you're, you're crafting the perfect mix, and a lot of that is just dialing out either 350 or 400 or whatever these icky frequencies are. And, and, and 
I, I walked in and I'm like, oh, Hard Rock Casino, the former Taj Mahal. We talked about this. Former Taj Mahal. You know, it's a big auditorium. It's a big space. Yeah, I'm like, oh my god! I guess everything in here just sounds like arena rock. Well, and I, you know, it was it was funny because we walked in and I was sort of, I was put off by the space, and and we discussed some aspects of the configuration, but certainly part of that was the sound. Yeah. And I was like, oh, is this really going to be what it's like? But like like you said, by the time Yes came out, whoa, <laughs> cleaned up that mix. So <laughs> I know I saw Steve Winwood. And opened for Carlos Santana in that same room years ago. And I thought it was pretty clear. I thought, wow, this room can do better. And then they did. I was so happy. Yeah. So happy. So, um, yeah, the, cer- and I agree with you. Certainly, the first two acts were not great. Sonically. Sonically, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and, and Asia was kind of, eh. Mm-hmm. You know, somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what that is. I'm, I, I, I'm guessing that sound has to happen in rehearsal and has to be, you know, agreed on with the bass player and the drummer as they're trying to make their presence happen in the low end. Yeah. And I think, yeah, when we saw Yes 50, I was blown away at the clarity. And I'm like wondering if they could pull off the same clarity in Atlantic City, and they pretty much did. So it'll be interesting because again, the venue that I'm seeing them at in Dallas is like where we were tonight, only worse. So if they can pull off clean sound in there, I'll be amazed. There we go. There so we go. we'll we'll uh, we'll check it out. So after the Carl Palmer's ELP Legacy, John Lodge comes out. Um, you know, we talked on the way down uh, again, I have somewhat limited exposure to, to the Moody Blues. I know the stuff I'm supposed to know. Yeah. I know most of the stuff they played tonight. I can't say that I ever identified with, with John Lodge particularly. Um, but you know, it was, it was fun. I was immensely entertained by the cello player. Hell yeah. Because, because they are they are just rocking out and this guy's just over there wailing on this cello. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was, you know, it, it's just it's not something you're used to seeing and it wasn't like it was entirely superfluous, right? I mean, he had a role to play. He was filling, you know, spaces in the the wall of mud. You could, you knew what he was doing, um, but it was just it just not something that I really expected to see. It, it, it gave it the Moody's authenticity. I think they may have toured with larger instrumentation. I think so. Yeah, in different phases of their career. Right. But you know, stripped down, I, I would say similar to. Similar to ELO, where you just need that one differentiating. Well, but ELO does have a whole host of people. Yeah. They've got like 16 people on stage. It's ridiculous. It's great, but it's ridiculous. (laughs) So that, you know, that's the weird thing, because you basically had, you know, again, what amounted to uh, a power trio 
plus a cello. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, it, it really kind of worked in a, in a strange a way. Oh, yeah, there was a keyboard. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, John Lodge is not Justin Hayward, but he has the same range and the same clarity. Yeah. It's just a slightly buttery voice. Doesn't have quite that little edge and diction of, of Hayward, but it, it, was, it was totally appropriate. It was. But let's talk about the one instance where they try to recreate the magic of the two voices. So, um, it was it was Ride My Seesaw. It was the last song they did. Who comes out to help out? One John Davison. And I have to say, I really, really enjoyed the two voices. I thought that was that was pretty darn good. Yeah, that was fantastic. I mean, uh, the guitar player's backing vocals were nothing to sneeze at, and the keyboard player. Um, they, they, they work their asses off the entire set. The Moody's are complex and textured, and there was a lot going on. But to kick it up a notch, no doubt, John Davison is that whoa yeah. factor. And I, I thought his voice fit in there really pretty well. Mm-hmm. It was fantastic. Fantastic. And, the, and, and and during that encore, the cellist got to play a guitar. And he looked out of place. Wow. <laughs> I got I just I guess got used to him playing the cello. Oh man. That guitar player was smoking. Hey, I don't know that I really cared that much for him, but that was just me. He was he, he was killing it. He was killing it on the Yeah, I wish I had names for that whole crew. We bought the program just to get the names, and there are no goddamn names. It's just yeah, it's just it's <laughs> it's strictly a yes program. It's not a royal uh, affair tour program. Yeah, it's like deep with small print. You'd think like John Anderson was back. You <laughs> crafted a bunch of nonsense syllables and filled in an entire twenty-page book. But I think. It's and it should be good. We should learn something from this. Undoubtedly, we will. Um, and then, so Asia comes out. I was on the edge of my seat for Mr. Bumblefoot. And I don't even remember his name anymore. I just, Ron Thaw. Ron Thaw. I just remember Bumblefoot. Originally, Ron Blumenthal. Um, really? That became Ron Thaw. Uh, yeah, he has a fascinating story. This man was in a car accident in 2011 and was brain dead. What? And, well, maybe not brain dead, but he did suffer some loss. And he forced himself to go out on the road because as a touring member of Guns N' Roses, he decided the show must go on. And uh, he, he, it's, it's in the wikis, and he, he's pretty open in the YouTubes. And he'll, he'll talk about how odd it was and how his life changed and his priorities changed in, in, uh, in regards to recovery. So going from Guns N' Roses to Asia, um, it's not the most obvious transition for a musician. No, no, it's not. Right. Especially this particular form of Asia and what they're doing. Yeah. Like, yeah. If, if if Asia was, like, doing their own tour and, and 
pulling from all aspects of the catalog, I think it would might make some more sense. Um, but yeah, this is different. Yeah, but but Ron is brilliant. Ron is brilliant. So yeah, I, I can't say enough about his uh, find his Instagram and uh, he he he. He's interactive and dedicated to the cause, and he he gave it all in this show. He's quite the artist. He got a little shout out from Steve at the end. Mm -hmm. Yep, yeah, Steve is Steve is hard to please. <laughs> so so let's talk Steve for for just a second, or at least let's talk about um, Ron's interpretation of Steve. So you know, basically the 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 Asia set was split where the first half had no Steve and the second half had Steve and at no point were there two guitarists so if Steve was on stage Ron didn't have a guitar if Steve was not on stage Ron was playing the guitar had this slick little double neck deal nice. um, where the upper neck was a fretless so he could sort of do Steve's lap steel parts um, sort of on the fly, which was, you know, it, it's a different way to, to play Steve Howe. I, I just thought it was very, very slick. Not quite sure how I feel about the LEDs, but it was, it was very modern. Ah, yeah. You know, yeah. um, yeah. <laughs> just very, very cool. So the vocals was what really was getting me. Now, John Wetton has a pretty distinctive voice. And it seemed to me, now I don't know anything about Ron Thaw. I don't know if you know about, you know, what his natural singing voice is or should be. But it sounded to me like he was trying to play the part of John Wetton's singer. I don't know that that was entirely natural for him. Did you ever think that or do you know any differently? What you're sensing, I suppose, is that Ron has a higher register than Wetton, so he was digging in mm -hmm. to his low end. Uh, it, it was really apparent in Lucky Man, because Ron Thal, <laughs> right, is <laughs> no Greg Lake. Right. Right. So he, 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 he's pushing, like, the base of his, his throat and making as much space down there as he can to resonate in right. the chamber. It was beautiful. Can can we stop for a second and 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 just address the irony that probably the best ELP song performed tonight was performed by Asia and not Carl Palmer's <laughs> ELP Legacy? <laughs>
I just played that one one too many times? <laughs> I do not know. Yeah, I, I thought it was. I thought it was great. I really, really enjoyed it. <laughs> um, yeah, Lucky Man um, is a. I mean, a staple for ELP, and I'm, I'm glad it was performed in this show. Even if it was by Asia. Yeah. So Asia did two covers. They did Lucky Man and they did Video Killed the Radio Star. Oh, so Ken, you awesome. were you were all excited about that. Did it did awesome. it meet your expectations? Yeah, because Bumblefoot went on Instagram and he and he, and he demoed his, his vocal effect pedal and he had the uh, the mid pass filter to to simulate the uh, the bullhorn. And then live he actually held and the bullhorn, yeah. So so I don't know that he needed the the bullhorn, except for a theatrical presentation when when the effect would have done the same. But uh, yeah, he went with a real bullhorn, and then he's singing his own backing vocals. <laughs> um, and then um, um, the final effect that he had on the Instagram video was the uh, the end, the outro. Where where he goes rather high in his register. Oh right, yeah. With, with tons of reverb. But man, that is such a a well crafted tune. Uh, it was in a perfect spot in Trevor Horn's range just to get that edge. And the song is in D flat, and it, it's such a, a you know. An unconventional pop song. Yeah, but it, it is you know it it is a pop song. The Buggles were you know a two piece electronic outfit, so it's mostly Jeff on keyboards with a drum machine, and sometimes you would get Trevor playing bass. That was pretty much it. I thought Asia did a really good job instrumenting that song. Um, that it was. It was in a lot of ways true to the original, um, but it wasn't like completely jacked up, you know. Yeah. I, I just I I thought they, did. <laughs> I, I really really found myself enjoying that. You know they they did an interesting sort of uh, selection of songs. I mean most of it. I mean it was all with the exception of the covers. It was all from basically the first two albums plus Go from the third one. Right. Was, was pretty much it for me. They. I don't know if it was just a better song or if they hit their stride, but Soul Survivor really resonated with me. I thought that was a fantastic um, rendition of that. I think Bumblefoot just dug doing that one. I thought it was yeah. Well, and I, I thought you know here again this was this was the first the first inkling that that Billy's vocals were on point tonight as well because mm -hmm. I, I you know the. When you would get the uh, the harmonies going there, it just it really felt right when they were doing that song. Yeah, I love some of what happened in the mix tonight. Um, Billy had less reverb on his vocals than anything we'd seen previously, and it was a good thing. It was a good thing. He was right there with John Davison. We'll get to that. And he was right there with uh, Ron Thaw. Fantastic. So what did you think of when Steve Howe joined Asia? 
Besides the fact that that was all you could hear. So... I marveled, not being present on all your Asia episodes and not being a devotee of the Asia catalog, I was pleasantly surprised to watch Ron playing the the first few guitar lines and very surprised to watch Steve playing his half of the set. There's just delicious guitar melodies woven in through all of those tunes. I think part of, you know, having done all of the Asia stuff that I did and having thought about the catalog and, and as we were discussing, being fixated on sort of the, the reformed original Asia, my theory is part of the friction in the beginning was that Steve didn't necessarily have an Asia persona. He was, he was just being Steve Howe. He was all over the map. He was all over the map. And I don't think that fed in with what John really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. When original Asia reformed, it was fascinating. And, and anyone who's listened to the episode where I cover Omega... So when, when the original Asia reformed, they had um, their first album was called Phoenix. We, we touched a little bit about that in the, the group tag chat or the group palaver, and I redid it um, again. That one is very much like, you know, the first two albums redone. It, it's very much in that vein. But they, they must have come to some sort of understanding. Mm. Because I remember I had, I had not heard any of the albums after that. Omega, Triple X, or Gravitas. Hadn't heard any of them. Now, Steve Howe's not on Gravitas, so it doesn't really count. But I hadn't heard Omega at all. Didn't know a thing about it. And when I got to, that, to doing that palaver, I was so excited. I couldn't wait to listen to it. And the first song on that, on that record is the most un-Steve Howe thing you've ever heard him play. And I was like, what am I going to do with this? What what has gone on here? But I think they must have come to some sort of understanding where Steve realized it would be better for Asia if he adopted a Steve Howe Asia persona. Wow. And, and I, I think he ultimately did that. But the first two albums, no, it was just... I'm Steve Howe, and this is what I do. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he boxed himself in in GTR. I, you know, I don't know. See, GTR is interesting. We should probably do an episode on GTR, especially now that we've at least finished recording Genesis episodes. Because um, I just the, the relationship between Hackett and Howe just is weird. But yeah, who knows? Mm-hmm. Okay, so just to really put this in perspective, they opened up with Don't Cry. They did. So you know it's Well, they opened up show. with Go. And then oh, sorry, sorry. They opened up with Go, which is a surprisingly good song. It is. Okay. Um, then they did Don't and then Cry. No, and then No Cry. And then you realize why Jeff is wearing the sparkly jacket. <laughs> so... It, it, it's it, it's it's not 
the same jacket he originally wore, but but it's a um, a remake, shall we say? Uh huh. And 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 I, I was damn glad that that this was a history lesson, and 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 Carl taught us about you know Jeff's involvement in Video Killed the Radio Star. Then we went into Lucky Man. Um, actually, the smile has left your eyes first. Oh, okay. Wow. Which was dedicated to John Wetton's son, Dylan, who apparently was in uh, in the audience. That's wonderful. That was very cool. Um, yeah, I would definitely, you know, wouldn't necessarily have expected that. Take a quick step back. In both this set and the Carl Palmer set, did you find it entertaining how Carl would step out from behind the kit to talk to us yes and then step back in yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah he, I don't know just that that tickled my funny bone yeah that he's a he's a lecturer he's a presenter he's a personality he's a businessman he, he, he's, he's, he's 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 made his own yeah you know most of the time drummers will just sit behind the kit and have a mic but Carl's got to come out and talk to you. So I, like I, I appreciate that. I like it. I, I do. So, um, yeah, back to the set then. After the smile has left your eyes, they did um, Lucky Man, which, as we already talked about, was just spectacular. And then... Uh, oh, and, and, and let's say that Jeff did a nice job coming up with sounds and execution. Oh, yeah. Very classic Keith Emerson. He did. He did very well with that. things that Jeff generally does. I, I believe I made the comment on maybe one of our Yes 50 episodes. Jeff a lot of times does a better job of recreating Rick Wakeman sounds than Rick Wakeman does. Yep. 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 <laughs> yep. Can't wait to uh, talk to more keyboards on the palaver. Yeah. Something I'm trying to do. And then, of course, we went into the, the Jeff Downs solo section, which I'm not going to say how I've got it noted in my notes here. Let's just say I'm not a big fan of extended solo sections from anyone at these, this point in my life. Well, okay. So when you get someone iconic like Steve Allen, known for guitar, known for solo guitar pieces, if it's a yes show, yeah, give the singer a break. Sure. Give Steve a solo, and let's let's do this thing. I, I get it. But 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 this is a festival atmosphere. Yeah. We don't really need to give anybody a solo, and we don't really have that much time. Yeah. 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 
I mean, so Jeff did some nice work. I just it don't was, know that... It, yeah, I mean, it was good. Don't get me wrong. If, if you had, It wasn't like all-out wanking. It was at least melodically interesting. Yes. Yeah. But it, I could have done without it. That's all I'm saying. Just you got you got four bands, man. Yeah. You know, like yeah. Step aside. Make 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 the show happen. And then Steve Howe comes out. That's nice. Yeah. And then they finished up the set with the uh, wildest dream, Soul Survivor. about Steve coming out is that in the background was Andre Chimondale who is Steve's guitar tech who was the guitar player in Project Object at least one of the guitar players and I see that dude and I'm like oh you're you're gonna have Steve's entire collection <laughs> and they're all gonna sound wonderful but Steve only played one guitar with Asia he had that what yeah, looked like Gibson. that that brand spanking new Gibson. It was really shiny. Yeah, I don't know what that was, but um, and what was with the dual pick guard? That was kind of weird. Let let's yeah, let let's say what it was. Like there must have been something in the contract for the Royal Fair. <laughs> Because it, like, like we're used to that in yes, like, like, like yes for the past decade has been very focused on Steve 
coming through. It's been the Steve Howe show. It's he he he's in the mix. He's present, and it's wonderful. In in Asia, I thought maybe he'd be a little bit subdued, but man, he was right up there, man. He was he was front and center in the Asia mix. It was really interesting. <laughs> it was it was uncharacteristic of like heat of the moment or what I mean that eighties sound. I mean, right, because with the eighties sound there was always that that sort of I'm not gonna say careful or delicate, but there was a balance between the keys and the guitars. Keys, guitars, snares, they all kind of had that mutual thing mm-hmm. happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in this in, in this arrangement, the, the guitar was just a little bit over the snare, it was definitely over the keys, yeah. And, and as we discussed, obviously, you know, when Steve was playing guitar, Ron was not playing guitar. And, you know, I think you would, you would said on the way home, this was the first time he's ever performed without a guitar. And it, it didn't seem entirely natural. The social media has talked about that. Okay. Uh, we've got we've got Ron without a guitar. Like this is a big deal. He's coming out of his shell, man. But he had the moves, man. He was doing like he he'd go into the note and he'd hold the mic and he'd like arch his back, man, and he he did the whole thing. So there's one more point I'd like to make, and I, and I don't I don't want it to come across like I'm quibbling or I'm bagging on Ron or anything else. Because I'm not, or at least I don't mean to, and I don't know if it's something that could be, um, that will sort of take time to get into. I didn't, with with a few exceptions, I didn't really feel that this lineup, this band, was emotionally connected with these songs. They they were they were doing them technically, they were performing the notes that were on the page, but I wasn't really feeling it. So, I mean, you can make the case that yes, is timeless, but Asia is dated. Yeah, and although Asia has persisted and recorded and made albums, they weren't present in our minds as producing new material and growing and right. whatnot. And unfortunately John dies, Wetton dies. And the way they presented themselves was as a tribute act today. You know, just the first two, three albums. Yeah. Right. And that's why, you know, it's and those albums, as you pointed out, are certainly um Deeply seated in the time in which they were released, mm-hmm. they they don't have some sort of they're they're not transcendent in the way that some other albums could be. Owner of a Lonely Heart is not transcendent. Owner of a Lonely Heart is not transcendent, <laughs> but it's brilliant enough that it's it's well it, it but it, it's the same sort of thing right because i've made the comment before that owner of a lonely heart very rarely translates well live i agree yeah yeah 
yeah. for for different reasons. But you know, so but and like I said, I, it would be interesting to see this particular lineup of Asia maybe continue and and develop their own identity, um, and and maybe access different parts of the catalog and see see what could happen because I think there's there's tremendous potential here, but you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I think, I think if if this particular group of Asia was not performing fifteen minutes before yes, maybe that maybe that difference wouldn't be so stark. But when you see, because again, John Davison has been performing these these yes songs for you know a good number of years at this point. I don't even know how many. I feel that John Davison is, he's invested in these. He believes these. Um, He feels these, and I feel it with him. And, you know, Mm. it's it's cool. All right. Well, we'll see what the future has for Ron, Carl, Jeff, and possibly even Steve. I mean, I I, I hope there's something, because like I said, the, the last four albums, I think, have been really, really good. But then, uh, then we got, and it was funny because we had made sort of the comment: the first three bands. Part of the part of what I was dreading with this four-band lineup was the interminable switchovers, because we've all been to shows like that. Band one comes out, and then you spend fifteen minutes futzing around. And then band two comes out, and then you spend twenty minutes futzing around. There was no futzing around. I was amazed. <laughs> it was in, it was maybe five minutes tops. <laughs> yeah, in between ELP Legacy and John Hodge Moody Blues, it was four goddamn minutes. Yeah, it's like amazing. <laughs> oh, that was brilliant. It was maybe six or seven between John Lodge and, and Asia. Maybe right. It was still pretty quick. Pretty amazing. Um, but then, of course, you know, it's like, all right, undercard's over. And so they actually had a pretty significant um, switchover before Yes came out. I mean, they were risers going off and risers moving around, and it was a whole big, big thing. But then we get um, then we get the headliner, Yes. Uh, all right, so Carl Palmer, Palmer has two gongs and oh, a big kit. And they had to wheel away that entire riser. <laughs> and I think they wheeled away the Moody's drum riser. Yep. Entirely. And then they brought in the J. Allen risers. Right. That, that, was, that was pretty significant. And they moved Jeff's riser, too. So Jeff was already on stage for Asia, but they moved him closer to the center somehow. Yeah. 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 It was a whole big thing. It was pretty cool. So they they set they get the stage set and you know the the Firebird Suite starts as we would expect. I found it interesting. Their their visuals are getting better. They still have the same sort of fundamental arrangement of the the video screens behind the band, sort of like you know, two portraits on the side, a landscape in the middle, and a couple little bits sort of on the stage themselves. Um, 
but the, the the visuals were getting better. Okay. And uh, then they opened up with uh, with no opportunity, which was just you know we knew we knew they were going to play that. We were hoping they were going to play it with Tony K, but apparently that didn't happen. Right. Which is right. is sad. But we knew they were they were they were going to play that. That went over really well. It was pretty rocking. <laughs> so we want to credit Total Mass Retain for uh, picking that to play at the Fan Fest at Yes 50. And we can only hope the fact that, you know, Billy John and the boys were out there listening to it, that that somehow permeated the culture and got that tune into the repertoire. It was, it was really pretty good. Then they went into America. Now, the first thing I thought of when they started America was, we just heard this a couple months ago with John Anderson. Yeah. yeah. A little different, obviously. Yeah. I can't say I would have thought that I would hear America performed twice by two different bands in the space of, what was it, two, three months? <sighs> It sounds so badass, no matter who plays it. I think I think there's this level where it's got so many parts and so much action and the guitar player has to master it. But once it's off the ground, it just explodes, no matter who the ensemble is. It, it just... God, I've seen this with Total Mass Retain. I've seen it with All Good People. No doubt The Awaken Tribute is doing it. And uh, John Anderson just nailed it with his Thousand Hands band. Yeah. And this was alive and brewing, and Steve was in his element. It was kind of like Steve's revenge. It's like, oh, everyone else has covered this. All right, now watch me. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, there, there was an aspect to that in this set. It's going to come up later on as well too although that doesn't land quite in the same way but but again at sort of earlier on in this episode i made the the hypothesis that you know after after delivering on yes 50 they can let their hair down and, and party this set sort of speaks to that it, it's not any one thing anymore and it, it you know it's kind of all over the place which is cool because after america they did Going for the One. It may not be everyone's favorite song, but it certainly is a rollicking good time. Yes. Um, you know, 
is there anything wrong with Steve Howe playing, you know, lap steel for an entire song? Hmm, no, I don't think so. <laughs> about that because the, the lap steel has been on wheels for a long time I, I can remember seeing him 10 years ago what's fascinating is all the times i've seen yes perform and i've seen steve howe perform and i've seen the lap steel come and go it's n it's not always the same way so sometimes Steve will do it himself. Sometimes he'll move it. Sometimes he'll kick it with his foot. Sometimes the guitar tech will come and move it in and out for him. Right. Sometimes it'll stay in place and he'll go to it. And go, you know, it, it's just fascinating that you know no two tours are ever the same with how Steve interacts with the lap steel. It just watching Steve perform is just entertaining. <laughs> There's no other way around it. And Steve was in like, you know, rock god mode tonight, which was fun to see. I think, you know, in Yes 50, I don't know if he wasn't feeling well or if he was feeling the pressure or what. He was a little bit more tense. Mm -hmm. Tonight, mm -hmm. he was he was relaxed, fun Steve. He was having a grand old time. Uh, it's a circus, apparently... All these cats are having as many friends and relatives come along for the ride, and uh, it seems to be a real raucous experience for them. Yeah. He talked about, his, uh, he explained to his granddaughter what gambling was. gambling was for the first time in the Hard Rock Casino, so clearly it's a family affair. Then they went into All Good People. You can't really go wrong. Um, and I'll just I'll run down the uh, the set list here, and then I want to talk about a couple highlights that we can maybe hit. Um, then Steve did his solo bit called Cactus Boogie, mm -hmm. and as we noted, it's fun to hear Steve say Boogie, Boogie. Indeed. Um, then they went into a killer version of Siberian Katru. Yeah. 
Yeah, those vocals. Oh, that man. was so good. So good. I bet Steve requested that one because he was just loving his vocal parts. Then they did a tribute to Chris Squire performing Onward, which I don't know. I, I don't know I've ever seen Onward performed. I know the tour after Chris passed away, they played it while Chris's bass was on center stage under a, a single spot. Um, but I, you know, they, they played the recorded version. I'd, I'd never seen the, the song actually performed. And then they went into Tempest Fugit and Rhythm of Love, which was a bit of a shock. Wow. So I knew that they were doing Rhythm of Love because I peaked. Right. I didn't realize Alan was drumming. Right. So that's when Alan White came out. So of all the things he could have picked, he picked that baby. That's really fascinating. It is fascinating. So this goes back to, again, what other band do we know of in the Yes Family Tree who performs Rhythm of Love? ARW. That's right. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and, and maybe we'll go in, get into that a little bit deeper, but these two songs... Um, Performed by Steve Howe on a Stratocaster. I Steve looks weird playing a Stratocaster. All right. Well, it is his. I th- is that uh, it's the cherry red with the, the cherry red. Bar, yep. I think it's from the drama era. If yeah. I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah. So at least it's within his repertoire. It, it, yeah. It's 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 official. Well, I mean, I think he's always had a Strat. It just you're so used to seeing him with the Gibson. Um, yeah. That just seeing him with a, a relatively tiny strat is just in a bright red one. It's <laughs> like, whoa. Well, he did stay true to the rhythm of Rhythm of Love. Yes. And all that he did to put his own touch on it was something with the articulation. So he, he was perhaps a bit more staccato there mm-hmm. with the chords. Uh, but he still stayed true to the power chords. You know, and, and I made the comment in the car, he seemed to be, regard. I, I don't obviously know how this got into the set list, but he seemed much more comfortable playing this than he's ever seemed playing Owner of a Lonely Heart. Right. Which was, it was, I, I didn't feel uncomfortable watching him until the guitar solo, which was not really the high point of the night. Right, so we thought in the past when he played guitar on Owner, he looked stiff. When he played bass on Owner, though, he that was, was boogie and down. Yeah, he liked that. Yeah, yeah that worked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this may be one of the strangest transitions ever, because after after Rhythm of Love, Alan gets swapped back out with Jay Shellen again. And we end the official set with Gates of Delirium. The transition <laughs> from Rhythm of Love <laughs> to Gates of Delirium is pretty stark. Just it's think like, about that for a second. It's like, ooh, whoa, whoa, whoa. We got a little too poppy there. <laughs> let's, let's dial that back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> way back. Way, way back. <laughs> let's get cerebral here. Um, I can't imagine what the conversation was, what the vote was. um, We surmised that they needed some relayer material to bring Patrick for Yes 50, and that that manifested as soon. Right. And soon is infectious. And I think 
I think just their experience with soon as as you uh, discussed before we went on air must have um, just just made delirium happen in, in the most creative of ways. I honestly now Steve pointed out they hadn't played the song in what eighteen years or something, which we figured out would have been the Masterworks tour two thousand one two thousand one, which Paul saw. I did not see. I honestly never thought I would see Gates of Delirium performed live. I, I just didn't. I didn't think it would really happen. I. I had other things going on in my life in 2001, so it wasn't even on my radar. I didn't even know they were they were performing it or I would have gone to see it. I know you said there were some comments on the social media after the Bethlehem show about the beginning of the song. Yeah, I, fans were saying, hey, Gates is a little rough. We, we have every bit of confidence that this is going to come together. I think it's come together. <laughs> I thought it was just superb I, I could probably go on for as long as the song talking about how great that performance was um, you know just I, watching Steve play his parts in the first part of that song it, it seems almost random yet it clearly isn't he loves the Telecaster doesn't he oh you know I love the Telecaster too, <laughs> so that was just like icing on the cake. Did you get one at one point? Or uh, yeah, I've got a telly. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, just, it, yeah. My my telly is is the only guitar I've ever owned that I honestly love. Wow, I love it. Cool. I like my others, but I love my telly. <laughs> you you move to Texas, you get a telly. There's something. There's something country growing there. <laughs> there is not. Stop it. It's not even, <laughs> not even funny. But uh, just so, oh, it was so good. Oh, my God. It was so, so good. And here's the thing, right? Whatever issues I've had with or continue to have with one Jay Shellen, I thought... His, I thought his drumming on the first part of Gates of Delirium was absolutely wonderful. I thought it really, it was exactly what it needed. I thought he was spot on. I thought his, you know, his, his aggressive attack fit in so well with that song. And I was, I was, I was jamming on Jay. I'm like, yeah, this is what I want. This is great. All right. So, so Jay, oh, my God. It, part of it was the overall mix, and part of it was was, was Jay. Um, when you do the compare-contrast, you've got, you know, Carl in the ELP legacy. You've got Carl in Asia. And he has a very wide brush. He, he's all over the cymbals. He's all over the kick. He's, he's filling it in. He's making lots of textures. Jay is in the zone, man. He's not taking that wide brush and, and, and filling it. Like, he is the drummer. He's in the pocket. And that dude just hit me right where I needed it. So the combination of the mix with Jay's discipline was beautiful. 
and I, I, I give that guy props. Uh, Jay has won me over you know, a couple times already. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow. And I made a comment during our John Anderson episode. Um, forgetting who his, his drummer was, but I said, you know, we're going to it's time to go to church it's like right yeah wow, yeah 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 and uh it's like oh yeah yeah, yeah. going to church with jay and i'm like man we're just we're just ooh, hitting that sweet spot yeah i thought i thought he was phenomenal in gates i thought john davison as a whole i thought his i thought his vocal delivery tonight was probably as good as i've heard um he seemed everything seemed to be more comfortable for him and i don't i don't know I, why i thought yes 50 was somehow pristine in a way yeah i thought he was in character with this show i thought he was a little more expressive this time around yeah i don't know yeah so there there were a couple of aspects to this right so in the beginning, with the sort of sparseness that was was going on, I thought, you know, Steve was phenomenal. Then sort of you get into the, the you know, the, the sort of normal band part and all that's going really well. Then as you proceed in, I one of the things that struck me as very odd was... And it didn't hit me until it was just about to happen. But all of a sudden, I was like, "How is John Davison going to deal with the with the hell line?" Because it seems very un John Davison. Seems very un John Anderson too. But mm. um, and and he seemed to really he seemed to really buy into that and and try to deliver that that line with a little bit of grit, <laughs> which I was like, "All right, good for you, John. Excellent." And then, then you get into like the, the battle sequence. And it's one of those things where, you know, for me, I got so sort of caught up in the spectacle that it took me a minute to realize that John just whoop, disappeared. And it was just it was just the four guys on stage. And there was this one part, and I got I got a picture of it that's that's kind of okay. I think you got a video of it. Like at sort of the climax of the battle, when when Steve and Billy are sort of like center stage yeah. looking at each other, and there's this sort of ring of fire going around. Oh, my brain was just like melting out of my head. I was trying to capture that <laughs> ring. I got still image, and I didn't quite get the the ring I wanted, but I got a suitable. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got a picture that's okay. I'll have to I'll have to put it up. And I was like, oh, this is so good. They're just, they're really bringing it, right? And then there's that one part that was, you know, it, it's it's one of those pivot points. And if it doesn't land right, the whole house of cards is going to fall down. And that's at near the end of the battle sequence when the keyboards come in with those, those big Cordy type things. Okay, okay. And I was just like... That's Patrick, right? Yeah. I was like, please, Jeff, please just give this to me. You've got to give this to me. And he he just landed it. And I was like, yes.
it's so good at, at reproducing sounds. Yeah, and and it was it was just what I needed because it it carries you in. If 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 that transition hadn't occurred, I, I would have been all out of sorts by the time I get into soon, and that would have been sad. Um, but he landed it, and then we just roll into soon, and and John comes back out, and boom, wait. Suddenly, Alan White's on the drum kit. Okay, so I, <laughs> my my eagle eye for whatever reason was 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 there a minute before you were. But two drum techs kill snare, kill hi hat, replace snare, replace hi hat, and how they get Alan up there so fast, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and then you go into soon, which we were talking on the way home that. And even after we got here, that melody just, oh, it just gets into your brain. And it's beautiful and you love it. Oh. So, yeah, it was, I was so, so pleased with that. And and here's, here's the other big prop to Jay Shellen. And I think I made this on the Yes 50 show as well. When Alan's behind that kit, Jay Shellen does not disappear. Jay Shellen grabs two tambourines and he stays on that stage and he's part of what's going on. And I really, really admire that. I think that's just the coolest thing about him. It's a good vibe, man. Yeah. 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 You know, he 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 he's he wants to be part of this. And I just I think that's cool. Mm. Now I, I I'm gonna go out on a limb. After listening to Billy's solo material um, and his recent release, I don't know how this would even be physically possible, but I wish, Joe, you could hear Billy drum yes, because I think Billy would be that happy medium between (laughs) Alan and Jay. Cause, Cause, Billy plays mean fucking drums. Does he really? I mean, um, he plays for his own stuff, and I just, I just dig what he's got going on. He's got a good feel. I think he's got dynamics. I think he's not afraid to take some chances and cool. You know, I mean, or you know, maybe we'll get to hear Joe Cash. Yeah, maybe Joe Cash. Put him in. Put him in. Joey Cassano. Let's do this. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, the Gates was so good. And, I mean, they could have been done at that point. I would have been fine. But, of course, that's not the way Yes shows work. So they go off stage and they have to come back for their encore. Our hair's down. It's carnival. So we're going to do something unexpected. We're going to celebrate Alan White. Very, very cool. And so they play Imagine. That's wild. That's wild. I, I I was sort of, I was, I was trying to sort of focus in on, on John because I, I I can only imagine anyone who's a singer, you know, there, there are probably certain songs that you're like, I want to sing that song. That's, that's, that's a great song. And he seemed to really be into it, which was very cool. But for me as as cool as as it was because you know i love the song i love everything about it but oh my god at the end when steve played the melody on the lap steel 
Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe it's a cheap gimmick, and maybe I'm just you know a, a, a lap steel whore, and I fell for the for the hook. But God, I just thought it was beautiful. He made that thing weep, and, he, and it, it, it was the fact that he started the solo on his axe, and then he and yeah then he just dramatically switched to the lap steel. You know, oh man, the video behind the band looped some John Lennon studio footage and at the end of it was that really cool shot of just Alan behind the kit during the John session. There was there was one image in there that, that really struck me for some reason and that was Alan holding these two tiny little symbols. So the, the two tiny little symbols Always makes me think of Awaken, first of all. Yeah. Um, but it was, you know, again, it, it was also struck me as I, I can, I can only imagine if you're working with John Lennon at that point, and John comes up to you and says, "Alan, I know you're a drummer, but here, take these little tiny symbols. I need you to do like, you know, this little part right here." You'd be like, shit, yeah, John, whatever you need, man. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't even think twice. You'd be like, yeah, I'll, I'll want me to play a plastic bottle? Sure, I'll do that. <laughs> so I just thought that was, uh, that, was, that was just sort of some of the things that went through my head for whatever reason while that was going on. It was very, very cool. And then, of course, they have to finish up with Roundabout. You know, I'm glad everyone really enjoys Roundabout so much. I, I really, really do. I... <laughs> I love it. I love it. I just I don't get excited oh. about it. I and I don't not like it. I just don't get excited about it. Hmm. Yeah, I I it was weird. Steve had a near perfect show. He he was very adept. He was very athletic. And then mm, I wasn't a huge fan of what, what Steve started doing in Roundabout in a few places. He 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 was up and down, dynamic. Um, of course, in 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 the, in the cool spots and the solo, whatever he he nailed it. And he pulled it together. Sure, but yeah, and, and when he was comping in the verses, when he's doing the harmonics and the verses, he was doing some interpretation, a little more triplets than usual, and mucking it up. But but eh, I'll, I'll throw him a bone. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's Steve Howe's world, and we're just living in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or, or the royal affair is living in it for sure for the next few weeks. So yeah, you know, and, and I just it was it was a very it was a much more relaxed show than maybe what we saw last year. Yeah, but that was a good thing. I found it to be extraordinarily enjoyable. I'm like I said, I'm interested to sort of have the opportunity to fill in some gaps in my knowledge before I see this whole production again. I hope I don't have nightmares uh, involving Arthur Brown and I can look forward to seeing him again. And you know the fact that I, I honestly I'm, I'm happy I have a second set of tickets just for the joy of seeing Gates performed again. Oh my God. Lucky you. So that will be that will be very very cool. But yeah, it was uh you know, I go to a lot of trouble to get to Philadelphia to see these shows. 
And I often tell myself that I'm too old for this shit and I really should stop doing this. <laughs> um, but but then I have an experience like this and it's like, this is why I do this. It's it's freaking fantastic. And seeing it with, with you know, like you or, wow. or Paul, it's, it's just, a, it's what makes it worthwhile. Well, every Tom, Dick, and Jane in the, off, and in the audience is uh, too old for this shit. But. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. All right, so that was the uh, that was the Royal Affair tour, part one. We'll uh, we'll we'll discuss my uh, second experience later on. Awesome. Anything uh, to finish up, Ken? Billy nailed it, man. Billy did nail it. This vocals were smoking. Oh, his backing vocals were great tonight. certainly hope you guys have enjoyed our conversation here on the Royal Affair Tour. If you've seen the Royal Affair Tour and you have your own thoughts, comments, or questions, we welcome you to reach out and share those with us. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We are at Progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, on all of those or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Spotify. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening.